began our new study in the book of First John. John writes in a way that he's writing to try to prove something. And uh, he writes, he says, as an eyewitness. Uh, and he gives what he calls testimony. And testimony is a word that we've religiousized. So we think of it in terms of church. Uh, in telling a story about your own testimony of what Jesus has done in your life. And we're going to hear a powerful testimony later in the service that I'm sure will move you as it's moved me every time I've heard it. But when John used the term, he wasn't talking necessarily or thinking about that kind of religious testimony, even though that's what he does. He was thinking in legal terms uh, of a witness giving testimony in a courtroom under oath, and he's saying, what I'm saying to you is true. We're going to see that over and over again as we take a little tour of his, of his writings. He wrote five books. We'll look at those in just a minute. First of all, background on the book of 1 John. 1 John is on, one of only two New Testament epistles, that just means letters to churches, whose author is not identified in the letter or book. But there was never any serious debate among the early church fathers and historians as to the authorship of 1 John. It was always attributed to the apostle John, the close friend of Jesus Christ. He wrote the book somewhere between 70 and 95 A.D., toward the end of the first century, most likely between 85 and 90 A.D. He was probably writing from the city of Ephesus in extreme western Asia called Asia Minor. He had settled there in the middle of his life. That was kind of his home place for his church planting operations. We don't hear a lot about his church planting operations. Luke covered and wrote about Paul's church planting ministry in the book of Acts, so we know a lot more about that. But John planted churches, and he was writing primarily to these Gentile churches that he planted in an area that's now modern-day Turkey. It's clear he's writing to set the record straight, so to speak, and to counter false teachings that have arisen and are affecting the churches and causing some people to fall away. He calls it, in his little letter, the spirit of Antichrist, if you read the letter. Not much detail is given about those false teachings. There was probably more than one. One heretical late first century teaching that was probably permeating John's churches was called Gnosticism. You may have heard of it. It had Greek roots, not Hebrew roots, and it was a belief based on philosophers like Plato and others that all matter is inherently evil and only the spirit is good. And it kind of moved its way into the church in all kinds of heretical ways. So, but as you read the book of John, or First John, keep in mind as we go through it that John wrote four other significant books of the New Testament. He wrote, most importantly, a deeply theological, the most theological of the so-called four Gospels, which are actually four historical accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. John wrote one of those called the Gospel of John. He also wrote two other short letters to churches. There were only one chapter each. They're very short, Second and Third John. Those are the books are named. So you've got the Gospel of John, First, Second, and Third John. Those are four. And then he wrote a book that I'm sure that you are somewhat familiar with. Very difficult to understand book, interpreted a lot of different ways. Called the Book of Revelation. That's a lengthy prophetic vision that he said he had one day on the Lord's Day. It concerns the end of time and the return of Christ. And that vision fits well, if you're a Bible student, 
with another vision or a series of visions that a guy by the name of Daniel had about 650 years before John had his vision. And those are recorded in the book of Daniel, and it also fits well with other Old Testament prophetic writings. So that's a brief summary of John's five books. In all of John's writings, he's seeking to bolster the faith of the reader. That's part one of his primary purposes in writing these books and letters. He, according to John, the key to a relationship with Jesus, the essence of our salvation, the key to living a so-called spirit-filled life, the key to eternal life is first and foremost belief. John really is big on believing and belief. He's trying to get you to believe that the testimony he's giving you is true. Uh, Max Lucado puts it this way. He says that faith or belief is the crux of the salvation transaction. The words, three words, believe, belief, and faith, translated in English, are mentioned 98 times. I've counted them. I've circled them in my Bible. 98 times just in the Gospel of John alone. A key verse that illustrates my point is 1 John, I'll, I'll pick one. There's, there's many verses of John that say that it's the exact same thing, but I'll just want, give you one as a little sample. It's 1 John 5, 13. He says the same thing in the book of John. If you want to go there, it's John 20, 31, but I'm reading from 1 John. I write these things to you who believe, there's his word, in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, what else can we say about the book of 1 John? Well, first of all, he was writing clearly not to non-Christians to convince them to become Christians. Oh, it's a great book for that. He was writing to baptized first century believers, church members, encouraging them not to fall away from the true faith and doubt the historical facts that were the foundation of their faith. Not to become apostate, so to speak, and renounce a faith they said that they once possessed. John tells us in 1 John that there are four things that ought to be in our life that bear witness to the fact that we possess this salvation, this eternal life, this relationship with Jesus that we say we have. Here's the four things. They ought to be bearing witness to us and to others around us. It's kind of the essence of what the Christian life is supposed to be. First and foremost, I've been talking about it for the last five minutes, belief. Belief in the historical truths and facts of the gospel. That's the first evidence that we belong to Jesus if we believe the stories in the New Testament, particularly the stories about Jesus coming, his virgin birth, his sacrificial death, the miracles, his resurrection, and those kinds of basic facts. He says this in 1 John 5, 1. Let me read that one first. That's another verse I'll read to you about belief. Everyone who believes, that's his crux. That's his standard. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, has been born again. Now, let me say this about the word believe, though. Most of us have kind of a Western mindset that's been given to us by the Greek philosophers. And we think of believe as giving intellectual assent to. But there's, that's not the Hebrew definition of believe. Believe, when I say I believe something, you know, Hebrew, I take it and I make it a part of my life. 
I apply it to my life. So what he's saying is if you give intellectual assent to and you incorporate it into your life and you're living it out, that's what the Hebrews meant when they said believe. So that's the first test of whether I know Jesus and have eternal life, according to John, is belief in the facts and the truth of the gospel. Secondly, it's confession of sin. It's not culturally popular today to say that humanity is in need of a Savior and that we're sinners. (laughs) Sinners is not even a popular word. We should be willing to admit to God and other people that we're a sinner in need of a Savior. And even though we have faith in Jesus, have been baptized and have the Holy Spirit, we still sin. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 tells us that we're still all sinners and we're to confess our sins to Jesus regularly. On this whole idea of sin, fallenness, repentance, confession, C.S. Lewis says this, fallen mankind is not simply a bunch of imperfect men and women, an imperfect creature who needs improvement. It's not a self-help religion we have. We've got to understand something. We were born with a bent towards sin, as the Bible teaches and C.S. Lewis tells us. We're a rebel who has to lay down our self-willed arms and surrender. This process of surrender, Lewis says, is called repentance. Third evidence that we belong to Jesus, that our faith is not some apostate, half-hearted faith. Obedience to Christ's teachings in general. Let me first add this. You've got to know Christ's teachings to be able to obey them, which means you've got to read this book, particularly the Gospels. You've got to memorize and dwell on and study this book and understand what Jesus taught. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, you make disciples by baptizing and teaching them to obey the commands that I've given you. We've got to know the commands he gave us. And then we try to participate with the Holy Spirit in this process, big religious word we call sanctification, which is a lifelong process, and grow in obedience to Christ. There ought to be a strong desire in you, though, right now to give up sin and to obey and to walk with the Lord Coupled with effort on your part, we have to participate with the Holy Spirit in resisting the devil in my life and in tearing down those sin strongholds that still rear their ugly head in my own life and those flesh patterns that are still there at age 66. Let me give you some examples of that, lest you doubt. Obedience is one of the tests of whether you belong to Christ. 1 John Chapter 2, verse 3. 1 John, chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him. How? If we obey his commands. That's pretty straightforward. Next passage of scripture where John says the same thing in his little book is 1 John 3, 10. I'll read it off the slide. This is how we know the children of God, who they are, and who the children of the devil are. John says, just look around. Anyone who does not do what is right, he's talking about obeying the teachings of Christ, is not a child of God. That's a scary little test, but that's according to John. And then lastly, in this vein, 1 John 5, 18, last one. We know that anyone born of God does not continue or persist in a pattern of sin, 
continue in sin. Number four, tangible expressions of love for other believers. It's all over the book of 1 John. One example I'm not going to read is 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If we see our brother in need, as James tells us and as John tells us, we're supposed to do something about it if we have the capacity to do it. So that's a brief overview of 1 John. Now we're going to look at, in just a minute, I'll get there in just a minute, the first four verses, which is really my assignment, was to set up the book and cover the first four verses of the First John. Before we do, let's lighten it up a little bit, and let's watch a Star Wars clip. The Force Awakens is what, it's a clip from The Force Awakens. And before I show it, I'm going to do a disclaimer. I don't need any text or emails telling me the Force is not Jesus, okay? I understand. It's a duh. I got it. And I don't need a lecture on the theology of the guy that wrote it and it's universalism and all that stuff. It's a great movie. Just go with it just for a minute, okay? So just watch it. It's okay. People who know him best. I think he went looking for the first Jedi temple. The Jedi were real. I used to wonder about that myself. Thought it was a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. A magical power holding together good and evil, the dark side and the light. The crazy thing is... It's true. The Force of the Jedi... Hans is saying to those young adults is the things, the stories they've heard about the Jedi and the Force are all true. John, in these first four verses, is going to say the same thing, not about the Jedi or the Force, but about the most powerful truths in the universe, not just some movie story. One of the things I used to do with my kids, and I still do it with my grandkids, I love to do it. They act like they don't like it, but they actually love it and beg me to do it. And then they'll make fun of me even as I start is to tell them, and I did this with my kids all the way into their teenage years when they would tolerate it, uh, every night when they were young, was to tell them what I call whoppers. And it's just made-up stories. I'd make up a different story literally every night. Usually I'd fall into a rut. Usually there was a similar thing. It was some animal story, and I gave some crazy name to the animal, and the animal gets rejected or something, and then I would weave them into the story, and four long imaginary animals were in the room, and we'd get to fight in the beds, and it was a real cool thing to do, I thought. But I had a prologue. The way I started, every whopper never deviated, and they could say it with me and tease me as I'd say it. It went like this. A long, long time ago, in a land not so very far away, and then I tell the story. I want you to listen to the first few verses of John's five books as I read them to you. You tell me if they sound like the beginning of a fairy tale, a myth, a good movie, or a bedtime whopper. John, chapter one of the gospel of John. Some of the five, first ten verses. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. What he's saying is Jesus is God and he's the creation agent. And without him 
nothing was made. And oh, by the way, I say this a lot, but we need to keep reminding ourselves of this as Americans. It's his universe. It's not mine or yours. It's really not. I don't care what Carl Sagan told you. It's not your universe. You didn't have anything to do with it. A much greater thinker than you thought it up. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not understand or comprehend it. Skip down to verse 10. He, meaning Jesus, was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not even recognize him. They didn't recognize the creator when he walked among them. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He was born of a Jewish mother, is what he's talking about. He came to the Jews. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who, key word for John, believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Children, not born of natural descent. Now he goes all supernatural on us. And he's talking about the rebirth. He's talking about the DNA of God literally being put inside of you and I, the spirit of the living God, the dynamite power that's inside of us. We really know him. We have that power inside of us. Truly not born of natural descent or of human decision or of a husband's will, but born or reborn of God. Then he summarizes again the word the living word that pre-existed in eternity past, became flesh, became a man, the incarnation, and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. And now he's testifying like a witness would testify, saying, me and some other guys and gals, we actually saw this. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Sound like the opening to a fairy tale? Let me go to Second John. A letter written to someone. Could be metaphor. He could be talking about a church. I think he's talking about a real lady and her real children. You choose. The elder, that's him, to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in what? The truth. What he's saying is, I'm going to share with you truth, not fiction, not myth, not fairy tale. And not only I, but all who know what? The truth. Because of the truth which lives inside of us and will be with us forever. Third John, the opening or the prologue of the next letter. To the elder, to my dear friend, a real guy in a real place by the name of Gaius or Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It sounds like you're talking to a real person about his real health situation. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to what? The truth. And how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in what? The truth book of Revelation. John describes himself as in the spirit on the Lord's day, on a Sunday, probably a Sunday morning. He's up praying and something happens. And he's going to tell us what he saw and what he heard on that day. A testimony, a supernatural testimony, granted, but a testimony. He doesn't purport to by talking about a myth The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants 
what was soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. John's saying, I'm testifying to what I saw that Sunday morning. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say to us who are reading this, Blessed are you who read the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Those are the prologues to four of the five books of John. Now, finally, we get to my assigned four verses for the morning and the prologue to the book of 1 John. And here's what he says. That which was from the beginning. He could be talking about eternity past like he was talking about back there in John 1. He could be just talking about the beginning of Jesus' life on earth, which we have heard. Now he's trying to bolster his testimony by saying, it's not just me that testifies to this. In fact, Paul tells us that we're 500 plus people that saw Jesus in the, between the time he was crucified and resurrected and the time he went back to heaven in Acts 1 about 40 days later. Luke said, when he writes his eyewitness account, he said, I interviewed many eyewitnesses. I'm writing a historical recording of what these witnesses say really happened. That's the wheeze that John's talking about. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have literally touched. This we proclaim concerning what? The word of life. Again, he's talking about Jesus. The life appeared. It means came, became flesh. We have seen it and we testify to it. He's repeating himself over and over and over to make a point. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you again what we have seen and what we have heard so that you also may have fellowship with us based on this shared Jesus belief. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Now he's talking about supernatural experience with the Father and the Son while he's here on the earth. We write this to make our, collectively, your and our joy complete. Comments and insight on the text. These are the does. Here's what he's saying. Jim, it was a real virgin birth. Jim, he really did all those thousands of miracles. Jim, he really walked on water, raised the dead, healed the sick, stopped storms, created fish. There really was a real Roman cross. I saw him bleed out on it. There was a real death. I saw him put his body in a real tomb. There really was a resurrection. We didn't believe the women at first. You know how women are. God did appear to the women first. But now we saw it and we believe it too. A real resurrection. A real Jesus. This is about the reality of Jesus Christ entering into human history. We call it the incarnation. God becoming a man. So that he could lay down his life as a sin sacrifice for the sins of Adam and Eve's kids. In payment of a cosmic penalty. Yes, I went big with that statement. It's God's universe. He gets to write the rules. 
When God prescribed that cosmic penalty for sin and rebellion, he knew that ultimately he was writing himself into the story as the sin sacrifice. There's a repeated emphasis, though, on personal experience throughout the book of 1 John, as there is in all the New Testament. John is offering a legal testimony of the living word, Jesus Christ, in his own life. But he's also saying that that reality should be the principal reference point of your life and my life. It's not just the most important reference point of human history. It ought to be a personal thing that we embrace and experience. If you have this powerful truth living inside of you, as John talks about, then you have a testimony as well. I know it's different. You and I didn't touch him. We didn't walk those Galilean hillsides with him. We didn't see him bleed out on a cross. But we should have as a testimony, first and foremost, a changed life, which bears witness to the truth. And we should share our faith in Jesus with other people as occasion arises. John is saying again, let me summarize two things. He's, here's what he's calling for, his application. Embrace, that means believe and obey the living word, Jesus. Number two, experience. That's not a Christian curse word. Experience that life right now on this earth by having fellowship daily, communion with God and his people. And it will bring you, John says, great joy. The gospel is no doubt powerful, supernatural stuff. It has the ability to completely change a life if completely embraced. If you just halfway embrace it, <laughs> some of you have done that. I encourage you to change your behavior and embrace it fully. You'll get halfway results. The power to use an old antiquated religious term from the 19th century revivals, the power of this great affection that he has for you and me is overwhelming. You're the apple of his eye, as the Bible teaches. You're the lover that he came to pursue. And that love is absolutely powerful if you will participate with Jesus fully in life transformation. His spirit will, over a period of time, transform your life. I'm not going to share with you this morning, I've done it too many times, the details of my experience. I'll say it is. It started at age seven. Then I took a serious four-year detour in college with the flesh and the devil, a serious detour that drastically affected my life in a negative way. But I really engaged Jesus fully at age 22. It got serious about it. And I've been tenaciously trying to participate with his Holy Spirit in life change for the last 44 years. And I'm not all I can be. By God's grace, I'm a whole lot different than I was at age 22. It's not just older and balder. No matter your age this morning, he can do that for you. You can start right now seriously participating with him. I invite you to. A few of you are around here about seven years ago when a friend named Gene Dressel came up here and gave a powerful testament. Most of you were not here, though, and don't remember it. And I can't believe I've waited this long to bring him back up on the stage. Gene, come on up here, and I want you to hear an incredible story of life transformation. I'm going to interview Gene. I spent a couple hours with him, oh, about an hour, hour and a half with him, I guess, yesterday morning, and we've talked throughout the day yesterday. 
And this guy's got a story to tell, and we're going to start with, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and what you do for a living right now. Yeah, uh, good morning. Um, Gene Dressel, 46 years old. Um, I'm married to Unhe and have two girls, Kenya and June. Will they dare stand up right now? Sure. Sure, uh, he, sure y'all will, yeah. Stand up, girls. Uh, look at that, a little reluctant. Let's give them a hand for letting us embarrass them. How long have you been married to that beautiful woman? So it's been 15 years. All right, cool. All right, keep going. Yep, so beautiful family, obviously. Um, work for Kimball Mechanical and look okay. out towards Goshen. I'm going to go into that a little bit. How long have you been going to New Heights? Pardon me? How long have you been going to New Heights? Yeah, I was trying to actually pin that down, and I know it's been more than 10 years, but okay. I don't have an exact So when time. we were over in that school cafeteria is when you started going. Okay. Correct. All right. So you're 46 years old, great wife, two wonderful daughters. You love Jesus. You have a great job, and God has blessed you. I'm going to embarrass him now. I found out some more details. I want you to know where he came from in a minute, and I want you to know how far God's brought him. Uh, you're responsible right now in your job for about $50 million worth of work annually. Is that correct? That's where we'll, I'll be at the end of the year, yeah. All right. You got about 60 employees that answer to you. Is that right? Okay. Uh, he also owns about, I'm really going to embarrass him, about 30 rental homes. And I forgot because you flew Matt down on one of your first flights. I wouldn't have got in with you, but you're a pilot now. And you got an airplane and you got a pilot license. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So let's start back in your childhood. Uh, tell us about your childhood, growing up, family history, church attendance, that sort of stuff. Yep. My, my parents divorced when I was real young. I don't ever recall them being together, so I was pretty small at that time. Mom married, remarried around third grade. Um, we, we weren't regulars at church. Uh, occasionally, Mom had taken me to the Catholic church. And then in summer, I attended like a vacation Bible school for one week out of the summer. So you never made a true profession of faith, were baptized, and none of those things that would be markers for a child, Christian-wise? No. Okay. And things started going awry morally for you at a pretty young age. You started doing the things none of us want our kids to do at about what age? Can us kind of start there and go forward. Yeah, so really my sixth grade summer is where things started to go south for me. Um, I started to kind of dip into the liquor cabinet at the house and, and drink alcohol. Um, that kind of moved into seventh grade, started to smoke pot. And moving into high school, you know, I was experimenting with all kinds of drugs, doing meth. We were doing acid and just pretty much whatever we could get our hands on. You also in high school started stealing regularly too. I, I, yeah. I spent a lot of time digging all this out of him yesterday. And, and uh, is that true? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so at 16, I, I was kicked out of the house and lived with the family and um, kind of ran around, started stealing, and we had stole a tractor. And at 16, I caught my first felony. Wait, wait, stop. I did this last hour. He just used a term that you may not be familiar with. Caught usually means like I fish a lot, caught a fish. He said caught a felony means he was convicted of a felony, his first felony when he was 16 years old. I want to make sure you get, you caught that, okay? And uh, caught that. when's the next felony? So moved back in the house, okay. back out at 17, and caught another felony at 17 years old. What would you do then? So we, uh, we were out. I was living with some guys in their mid-20s, and they pretty much stole every night. 
got caught running around with them. We broke into a convenience store to get some beer and cigarettes and got So caught. felony theft of property was number one, burglary was number two, but before you even got to age 18. Correct. Y'all were also selling drugs, weren't you? We were. Okay. And keep going from that point on and tell us how, what's, what happened in your life. Well, let, let me pull up a driver's license. That's Gene Dressel. Now, that's a few years later in Ferris. That's early 20s, 2021 in that age, but that's Gene. So you kind of look like a meth dealer in that picture. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no offense if you look like that. You could be Jesus, but you didn't look like a meth dealer. All right. What what'd you start doing then? How did it go from there on? Yeah, so really around this age is when um, – I was trying to make some meth in Blue Springs, Missouri, and we had an explosion. Um, Meaning you blew up the house. We, trying we to blew meth. up the house. Okay. And what happened to you physically? So physically, I, this hand was pretty much burnt to the bone. Uh, my ankle was burnt. And, uh, you know, I just, we, uh, there was a child upstairs on the third floor, and we, we got him out and then started to evacuate some of the neighbors when I heard sirens. And at that point, I just took off on foot. So over the next few months, you're kind of fleeing the law all over that area of Missouri. Uh, FBI gets involved. They issue a federal warrant for you. You end up on your picture on the TV screen as one of the top most wanted men in the state of Missouri. Is that correct? That's correct. So they're looking for you. And this is like a movie. You flee then to uh, the backwoods of Arkansas being Cane Hill. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you successfully hide out for how long? For eight months in Cane Hill. Eight months in Cane Hill. You're, and all in the meantime, you had a girlfriend, you had a child. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And uh, so tell us about God speaking to you one day when you are struggling, what life was like during that eight months that you were at Cane Hill? Yes, yeah, so really, during that eight months, I would kind of go through days where I was paranoid, and, you know, I would I had guns, and I would wait outside at night for the police to show up so we could just kind of settle up, you know, on the spot. Um, wait, wait, stop. Let me translate that to you. In case any of the women missed that, he was anticipating getting in a gun battle and going out in a blaze of glory. Is that true? That's correct. That's one of the things you were contemplating doing. Okay. What changed your mind? So the flip side of that is there was days where I was depressed and, uh, you know, crying. And I just remember one night I, I laid in bed and I was crying and I just said, Lord, I, I need you to help me get ready to go to prison. And uh, in a roundabout way, the next day, the police found me and the Lord was saying, you know, he's ready. I'm not messing around you might change, change mind again. Okay. So instead of the guns, you, you surrendered and you went to jail. I did. Took a little while. They finally figured out who you were. And you ended up in the Washington County Jail for a long time. And uh, while you were there, tell us about, I know you're, you can't tell exactly when these things happen. You started having wonderful things happen in your life as a result of some men and women pouring into you while you're in the jail. Tell us a little bit about that. And they don't have to be in chronological order. Even tell about the, some of your spiritual experiences. Yeah, so really in jail at Washington County, there's ministers that come in and out. And I started to develop some relationships with one in particular, Don Seaman. Um, we got close. I just, you know, I was changing. 
while I was there, I was water baptized by a Church of Christ pastor out of Springdale. In a, in a horse trough. In a horse trough. All right, in the Washington County Jail. And then, um, you know, Don's wife, Susan, was pretty active, you know, over the phone with me while I was in jail. And uh, one night with about 40 guys around, I'm on the phone talking to her, and she's praying in tongues, and I just felt the Holy Spirit come on me, and I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. So you had a Holy Spirit experience in the jail on the telephone with a woman talking to you in tongues. You get baptized by a Church of Christ preacher in a horse trough, and you're having regular Bible studies with various ministers coming in there. Your life is starting to change. That's a fair statement. Yes. Okay. And, but you've got a long road to hoe, so to speak, legally. Okay, what happens legally next in Washington County? Yeah, so I pled to 10 felonies in, in Arkansas. And then at that point, um, I've got five years probation on those 10 felonies, which is a miracle in itself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, from there, uh, Kansas, or Missouri extradited me to Kansas City, where I faced the charges for blowing up the house. For blowing up the house, uh, attempted manufacture, and I had an old gun charge hanging out there. Just an old gun charge, okay. And so you get convicted of all that stuff, and you get sentenced, and you get another huge break. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I was sentenced to some time in prison. Um, you know, left Jackson County. They sent me to St. Joseph, Missouri, to prison where they onboard. Spent a couple months there, and they provided an opportunity to me to do 120 days treatment while, you know, incarcerated. And the, the basis of that was if you complete the program, the judge has the option to, to pull you back and then parole you on five years probation. Okay. Not everybody passes that, do they? Not everyone makes it through. And you passed Made by the grace of God. And you got out. And that was in late 2000 or early 2001? Yeah, that was around November of 2000. Okay, and where did you end up at being paroled to? So Don and Susan Seaman, um, the jail ministers, they followed me and we kept in touch. They allowed me to parole out to their house and grab it. Okay. Um, where I, uh, Don, we, I was looking for a job. Don felt like the Lord was telling me, telling him that I needed to apply at Crossland Construction as a carpenter which I really wasn't interested in doing, but I felt like I needed to be obedient and do it. And you did it. I did and was hired on as a laborer. For how long did you work at Crossing Construction? 13 years. Tell us about where your position when you left Cross. You've only had two jobs since you got out of jail, Crossland and Campbell. And so you're at Crossland 13 years. What was your last responsibility at Crossland Construction? Yes, yeah, so I was a site superintendent at Crossland Construction. You oversaw projects like the building of Fellowship Bible Church mm -hmm. in, in Rogers, Arkansas. Then it was yeah. Lowell. You were yeah. involved in that project. You ran into men there who also poured into you and mentored you, didn't you? Who was one of those? Uh, Steve Wood. Yeah, he was head of buildings and grounds there. And uh, also, you joined a church eventually here in Fayetteville, moved in an apartment yourself. What church was that? Yep, so when I, I moved to Fayetteville, got an apartment, and then I started to attend a church Christian fellowship here in Fayetteville. Okay. And some of, most of you have not heard that church. It doesn't exist anymore, but there's people, it's a congregation from that church. So tell us who some of those folks are. Yeah, Dick Ayers, Carrie Fish, the Waller family are, are some people that were at CF. Yeah. Matt and Suzanne are here this morning hearing your te testimony. Dick probably is here. Dick, are you here? 
Uh, not yet. Maybe it's your first service. Dick was the pastor of the church. Carrie was one of our missionaries and one of their, she was missionary to Yemen first and eventually was a missionary with us to northern India. Now she's back. Her husband's in the service this morning. There's a lot of connections you have to New Heights. So God started pouring into you through all kinds of people, men and women, from the time you started submitting your will to his over a period of time. But was it easy? It wasn't a perfect walk, no. Okay. Tell us about being alone in the apartment and what you do to try to not fall back into those patterns of sin that have been really easy for you to fall back into. Yeah, so, you know, a real danger for somebody that was an addict or was involved in, you know, bad behavior is just to kind of get alone and then that pull of the past draw you back into that familiar behavior. So one thing I did is I started to work out, got involved in a cell group, began running, and then, you know, I would just spend time in my apartment with the Lord, hanging out, dancing around, worshiping, and, and just plugging in. I'm not going to, yeah, I am, I'm going to embarrass you. Uh, I did it last time. One of the things I loved about Gene, after I got to know him, you can tell he's a pretty laid-back guy, and he's not like Lee Epstein or even me. He's not out there all the time, okay? And so he's a subdued, quieter individual. And you know it's the Holy Spirit if he's uncontrollably dancing during the service, during worship in the back of the gym. And Gene used to, I used to come here, I love to see Gene in the back. First few years we're in this gym, he was always in the back. He didn't bother anybody who had a different view of worship than he did. But he was expressing his love and affection for Jesus by dancing in the back. And I've never forgot it. It had a huge impact on me. It was a testimony to me, of the goodness of God in Gene's life. All right, keep going. Well, give us some words of wisdom. What would you say to us? Yeah, you know, there's a lot that could be said. Um, I think the one pretty important thing for me is most of us have some type of past. And, uh, you know, when we come to know the Lord, he forgets about it. And it's good for us to kind of let that go and move forward, too, and not let it become our identity. All right, brother. Let's give him a hand. Thank you. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ can do in dramatic fashion if you and I will fully participate with him in this process of life transformation. Let's go back to truth again. The early church loved creeds. We're going to recite right now a second century, I believe it's second century creed, called the Apostles' Creed. We don't do a lot of liturgical stuff in this church. We're all over the map, though, as you can tell. And I want us to stand right now, if you will, and let's state truth. There's power in stating truth, just simply stating the truth of the gospel. So read with me on the screen, out loud, with enthusiasm, the second century Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and maker of earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified and dead and buried. I believe that he who suffered was crucified, buried, and dead. He ascended into death, and on the third day he rose again. 
He ascended into heaven where he sits at God's mighty right hand. I believe that he's returning to judge the quick and the dead of the sons of men. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in a life that never ends. You can have a seat. Now it's your opportunity to participate. You can do a lot of things in the next 15 minutes. You can uh, participate by engaging in worship. You can participate by going to take communion. It's available for them around the room. We encourage you to do it as the early church did every week on the Lord's Day when they got together. And also, if you've never been water baptized, there weren't early church. When you professed Christ, you got water baptized. Jesus modeled it. He commanded it. It's the way we make disciples. We baptize and teach to obey. We had three baptisms or four in the first service. I don't remember. One of them was spontaneous. If you want to be baptized this morning, if you've never been or you want to be rebaptized, just come see a prayer team member. We'll stop the worship like we did last service and just baptize you. So baptism is available. But bow with me in prayer right now. If you want to be prayed for, the prayer team will be around the room. Prayer team, come on up and scatter around the room now. For any reason, or if you want to go minister to someone, even a total stranger, you have freedom to do it in the room this morning. Come, Holy Spirit. That spirit that affected Gene in that jail while someone was praying for him on the phone, rain down that fire on us right now from heaven. Do your work in this room this morning. Convict of sin. Someone prophesied before I started that you wanted to banish anxiety from people in this room. Heal us from anxiety and anxiousness and worry and fear. Convince us of the truth of what was shared this morning. Tear down the devil's work in our lives. Fill us with the power from above and heal the brokenness. Comfort the hurting. Heal our diseases. But most importantly, change and transform lives and destinies in this room this morning. I ask it in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.